Are there any sorts of people who fill you with disgust? Disgust is quite a strong term to use, but I'm sure there are individuals who, when you hear of their actions, the way they live, the way they speak to others, the way they act towards you, just fills you with a, with a, with a disgust towards what they're doing and the way they act. Maybe it's people that you see on the news, that the criminals, the people who are getting sent down for life, the murderers, the rapists, the abusers. But it need not be those who fill us with disgust. There's often quite a distance between us and them. Maybe there's people who you see, maybe at your workplace or in your neighbourhoods, who just have lives that are such strong odds compared to the way you would live. People with extreme political views. People who are racist, for example. People who have a different view or practice of sexuality than you would have. Perhaps any of these people could fill us with disgust. Maybe it's people even closer. People who we have to deal with daily, on a regular basis, whose whole attitudes are just so egotistical, uh, who's so entitled, so self-righteous in all they do, so selfish in the way they act. And when you bump up against these people, it's easy to just feel disgust towards them. How can they live like that? How can they act? Do they not think? Do they not know what they look like? Imagine the worst of those people and then ask, could God ever forgive them? Could you imagine yourself sitting in church next to them, right next to them? Would you count yourself a brother or sister to that person ever? Could it be possible? Even knowing all the things that they have done in their past, even knowing the behaviour of their life that you have seen, is it possible for God to forgive such a person? If Jesus were on earth today, would he ever go to their house and eat a meal with them? Would he ever? It's an important question to ask. Because by asking that sort of question can help reveal whether we've understood God's forgiveness towards us. In fact, it can help reveal whether we have at all been forgiven by God. How we consider God's treatment of others who we consider worse than ourselves. And it's the question that is sort of simmering in the background of the passage that we read today from Luke chapter 7. Now, I started reading, you'll notice, from chapter 7, verse 29, where it, partway through the discourse before the, the actual event of the woman coming to, to Simon's house. And the reason is because that sets an important backdrop of the contrast and the uh, conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. You see, Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, when John came, who did he think that you were going to see? John the Baptist, remember... His father was a priest in the temple, and there was some remarkable events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. So as John the Baptist grew up, the religious leaders would have been very interested to see what became of this man, John the Baptist. And they hear that John the Baptist is teaching that he is the forerunner to the Messiah. And so they go out to see him, and they listen to him. They want to be part of this movement. If this is the time the Messiah comes, they want to be in the right place. They're certainly at the right time. So they go and listen to John out in the desert, baptizing people in the River Jordan. And John says to them, You brood of vipers, you sinful, wicked, evil men, who told you to flee from the wrath that is coming upon you? And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they decide, 
we'll brush John aside. Uh, it was pretty easy to do, to be honest, because John looked a bit of a nutter. He lived out in the desert all on his own. He had just a small group of committed disciples with him. He ate some crazy food. He wore some strange clothes. And he had this unusual practice of baptizing people. John, nah, we, we can dismiss him. He's almost demonic in the way he acts. And then Jesus comes. And John the Baptist is saying, Jesus, this is the man who I'm speaking about. This is the Lamb of God who's coming to take away the sin of the world. And so the Pharisees start watching Jesus. What's he going to be like? But similarly, Jesus doesn't match their expectation. He's not, he doesn't seem to be interested in slotting into their hierarchy, into their power structures. He's certainly uh, quite blatant in the way he breaks many of their rules and restrictions and regulations that they impose upon themselves and upon the people. It, Jesus spends all his time with tax collectors, friends of the Romans. How, why would the Messiah align himself with our enemies? And so it's easy to dismiss Jesus. We, we don't think really he is the Messiah after all. He, he doesn't fit what we were expecting, certainly. And Jesus mocks them. And Jesus says, look, who is it that you want? You, you had the loner in the desert and you condemned him. You had the man of the people and you condemn him. You've got to make up your mind about who I am. You've got to come to an understanding. You've got to look at the evidence that's in front of you. You cannot ignore the miraculous power that I've begun to show you in my ministry. And so it's against that backdrop that the Pharisees decide, right, well, we're going to have to give him an opportunity to speak. We're going to have to assess who this Jesus really is. Is he the Messiah at all? Ought we to be listening to him and following him? And so Simon invites Jesus to his house for a kind of, Critical assessment. And critical is the key word. The atmosphere in the room was so stony and cold. The tension was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. Why do I say that? Look, when you have visitors to your house, there are certain things that you always do, whether you like them or not, whether you know them or not. You open the door with a smile, always. And you smile at the person who's there. And if you quickly realize you don't want this person, you drop your body language, you get rid of the smile to show them you're not welcome. Okay? But you open the door with a smile. You invite them in your house and you let them walk in and then you shut the door behind them. And then you go and show them to a sitting room. You show them a place to sit. You ask them if they want a drink. And it's always a little bit awkward if they say no, so you have to offer them another drink. Even a glass of water, please, can I offer you something? And you show them where to sit and then you turn the TV off and now they know you've got your attention. And you do this for anyone, even the double-glazing salesman, okay? You invite him in and treat him in such a way. Now, it was no different in Jesus' time. The Pharisees, they would, uh, anybody, not just the Pharisees, you would greet your visitor by first giving them a kiss, uh, an embrace, just on the cheeks, like they do in some parts of Europe, I suppose, today. You would provide them with some olive oil and some water so that they can wash their hands and their feet and their face, Olive oil was like the soap of the day. It's just like giving them soap and water. Uh, you would um, invite them in and give them somewhere to sit. But Simon ignores all of these customs. And he does it on purpose. He could not have not done it on purpose. It would be so ingrained into you. That's just the way you treat people. And so it's as though Simon has walked to the door and walked out. And expected Jesus to come in himself and find a place to sit. His actions are deliberate 
and pointed, and it's designed to put Jesus on the back foot and to show him, by his actions, if not by his words, you're not really welcome here. We don't think all that much of you. And you are on the defensive now. Now, in the room, as Jesus entered, there would have been the Pharisees, maybe one or two other people uh, from the public who were just able to to enter these big houses, uh, sit in the courtyards and watch the meal and listen to the conversation that was going on, maybe chip in occasionally. And of the people around the room, there was one person who was the odd one out. There was an odd one out. There was a woman. That was odd. It was very unusual for a woman to be on her own. The fact that she was already there is the best way to make sense of uh, uh, verse 37 and verse 45, for example. Jesus, in verse 45, says, From the moment I entered the room, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And so I take it that the woman knew where Jesus was going to be, gets to the house first, and then is in the room as Jesus comes in. Uh, She's a woman in this room of religious leaders, the powerful men. She's the odd one out. She's the odd one out because she's a sinner. We're told three times in this passage that she's a sinner. Luke tells us in verse 37, she had lived a sinful life in that town. Or if you know the idiom, she was a woman of the town. Um, Simon describes her as a sinner in verse 39. And Jesus describes her as a great sinner who has been forgiven. She's a sinner. And here she sits amongst this group of religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are immaculate in their behavior, who are perfect in their morality. If we were to ask Simon the Pharisee to think of the most disgusting person that he could conjure up, the same question I asked you uh, to start this sermon, it would be this sort of person, this woman, who he would pick. The sins that this woman had committed were, in the eyes of Simon the Pharisee, amongst the worst that a person could possibly commit. Could God forgive this woman? Absolutely not. You see, for Simon the Pharisee, he knew that forgiveness was available. He knew that forgiveness was needed. He couldn't avoid that truth because of the way the temple was set up. But Simon understood that if you wanted forgiveness, you had to repent. And surely, part of repentance must be to pay back for the wrongs you've done. So if you're a thief, repentance would include paying back what you've stolen. If you are uh, an abuser or a murderer, repentance would include making some sort of compensation to the family of the lives you've taken. But what sort of compensation could this woman ever offer? Of all the lives that she's affected and perhaps destroyed, how could she possibly begin to make proper recompense to those that she had sinned against and with? And so, in the eyes of Simon the Pharisee, this woman has put herself beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. She has burnt all of her bridges. She is the most disgusting. And not only that, likely she was a Jew. And so she's not done these things in ignorance, following the culture uh, of her situation. She's done it in direct disobedience of the God of Israel. She is the disgusting one. She was the odd one out because she's a woman. She's odd because she's a sinner. She's the odd one out because she loved Jesus. Now, I have no doubt that when the woman entered the room, she was already believing, trusting in Jesus. In verse uh, 34 of Luke 7, uh, we're told that Jesus was the friend of sinners. 
He spent his time with people such as this woman. He was preaching to them the good news of the gospel, salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation with God. And I take it that the woman has heard something of this message. And her actions in verse 37, when she knows where Jesus is going to be, she rushes home to grab her perfume in order to go and meet him. I think that's because she's already heard this message from Jesus. And she wants to come to him, she wants to respond with gratitude. She's been given hope for reconciliation, some sort of hope for dignity, if she can be forgiven of her uncleanness. And so she rushes home, grabs her perfume, no towel, notice, no water. So probably she wasn't expecting to do all that she ends up doing. She just brings her perfume. Probably she was expecting to just anoint Jesus' hands and maybe his head and just say some words of thankfulness and praise for the good news that she has received. But she sits in the room and when she observes the way Jesus enters and the stony cold reception that he receives, the hatred that he's simmering behind the eyes of the religious leaders. Her heart is is overwhelmed with grief. No doubt for her own sin. No doubt uh, overwhelmed with gratitude for the forgiveness that she's received, but overwhelmed with grief on behalf of Jesus for the rejection that he is facing, for the humiliation that he is forced to be going through. And when she sees Simon the Pharisee not even give Jesus the most basic courtesy, she moves to offer that same courtesy herself. She moves to act in a way which says, don't you know who Jesus is? Don't you know how good he is? Have you not not heard the message that he preaches? Have you not seen his power, his goodness, his love? Not only is this man worth the basic courtesies of our time, He's worth all that we have. And so she bows at his feet in humility and she she pours out her perfume to wash Jesus' feet. And she weeps over him. Pouring out that perfume, perfume would likely have cost a year's wage. Imagine having a year's wage tied up in one handheld luxury item. A Rolex watch would be a good example. And she pours out that price, that cost, that value, all upon the feet of Jesus. The difference, of course, between the perfume and the Rolex watch would be, the Rolex watch would at least go on ticking. You know, Jesus might put it on his wrist and and tell the time with it over the next few days. But the perfume is just gone, it's poured out, it's given to him. And it will last two, three days most. And that will be gone, a moment in history but an opportunity to show how much she values Jesus Christ for the message that she has received from him. And then she lets down her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. It is hard to overstate the shock that would have been in the room when she did this. It was permissible for a man to divorce his wife if she let down her hair in public in this way. It is the sort of thing you would reserve for your wedding night, to let down your hair and let your husband see your hair for the first time. And this woman, this woman of the town, kneels at Jesus' feet, lets down her hair, and wipes Jesus' feet with them. Is it because she's just so hardened to cultural sensitivities? Is it purposeful 
as a, as a means of demonstrating her utter devotion now to, to Jesus Christ? Either way, it seals the deal for Simon. If this man Jesus, if he was a prophet, he would know who this woman is that is touching him. If he was even a prophet, let alone the Messiah of God that he claims to be, if he was even a prophet, he would surely not allow her to touch him. He would know how embarrassing it is for this dirty, unclean, offensive, ungodly woman to be anywhere near him, let alone fawning over him in this embarrassing way. If he were a prophet, he'd be able to see the problem here. Now notice that Simon doesn't say these things out loud, verse 39. Simon is talking to himself. He thinks it. And in an ironic twist, as Simon's thinking, if Jesus really knew what this woman was like, Jesus shows that he really knows even the thoughts of Simon. And Jesus turns to Simon and questions him. Verse 41, he says, Simon, there were two debtors. Two people who owed money. Now, even at this point in the parable, Jesus has begun to turn the tables on Simon. You see, the Aramaic word for debt is exactly the same word as they used for sin. It's why some of the older people might know a version of the Lord's Prayer, which is, forgive us our debts. Uh, We normally say, forgive us our sins. And so Simon is sitting in the room looking around, and in his eyes, there is one sinner. There is one clear and obvious sinner in this room, and it is that woman. And Jesus says, Simon, there were two sinners. There were two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and one owed 50. A denarius was a day's wage, basically, for the average person. And so, roughly, you've got two years' wage debt versus two months' wage debt. 5,000 pounds versus... £50,000. Now, it's obvious now who is being compared in this story. You see, as I said earlier, even Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, would not have dared to claim that he was without sin. It was foolishness to to claim that you're without sin. That's why you have to offer the sacrifices in the temple, is to to deal with the, the problem of sin. But at this stage, Simon might not have had too much of a problem with the story because in his eyes, yes, there was sin, but it is it is small sin. And if you compare my small sin with the the weight, the depth of the sin that is in that woman, that she has thrown herself into, then really just look at the size of look at the comparison between us. Yes, I have sin, in fact Simon might have said, but it is next to nothing in comparison with hers. I wonder if there's people here who recognize Simon's thought process. Are you one of those who, just like Simon, are ready to admit your own sin, but are quick to draw a comparison with other people? Because it gives you comfort to know that there are are others who have so much more sin to deal with than, than you do. And so therefore your sin is only a small problem, you think. Do you use the extent of the sin in other people's lives as an excuse for the sin in your own life. Well, here comes the jab of Jesus' response. Simon, neither of them could pay him back. Neither of them could pay him back. Neither had the money. It is true, 
as you surmise, Simon, that she is unable to pay back for her sin. But it is also true, Simon, that neither are you able to pay back for your sin, small as it may be. She is not the odd one out. You are in the same boat. Does that offend you? It might well offend you. Because what it does, it means that your small debt of sin, your occasional lies, your little bit of anger, your impurity of thoughts, your um, those times when you're not quite as generous as you could have been, those little sins that you have that are mainly contained and kept behind closed doors and don't seem to have too much of an impact on other people, that little debt of sin puts you in exactly the same boat as even those most disgusting people that you were able to point to at the beginning of today's message. Your little debt of sin puts you in the same boat as those with the mountain of sin, the abusers, the murderers, the rapists, the self-righteous, the sexually promiscuous, the heretics. Because neither of you are able to pay. It is a story purposefully designed to totally shake up Simon's thinking about what sin is and how it needs to be dealt with. Jesus is showing Simon the reality of his foolishness. Perhaps he's showing you the same thing as well this morning. Now, in the parable, the moneylender then goes on to cancel the debts of both. Forgiveness is freely offered. And then Jesus asks Simon, if this is the case, which one will love him more? Which one will love that moneylender more? Of course, it's the one who was forgiven the bigger debt, Simon says. Look at this woman, Jesus says, verse 44. Look at this woman. How could her actions be described as anything other than love and devotion? From the moment I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet, weeping on behalf of my humiliation, serving me with humility, glorifying me with her most valuable possessions. She loves me, Simon. She loves me because her great debt has been forgiven. I think that's what Jesus has been in verse 47. Not that, she's lo- not that she's forgiven because she's loved. Actually, it's the other way around. You can see that she has been forgiven because she is loving me so. But Simon, what have you done? Jesus asks. You've not even shown me the most basic courtesy. And so we can all see it clearly. Simon, she loves because she has been forgiven so much. Simon, Have you been forgiven even your small debt? It's questionable because you've not even shown me a small amount of love. You've not even shown me courtesy. In fact, you've despised me. We don't know how Simon responded. Certainly it would be hard for him to ignore this powerful lesson. I want to ask you now how you respond to the lesson that Jesus gives I want you to reconsider that question that we started with at the moment, at the the beginning. Who are those people in life who disgust you the most? Who are those people who you think God perhaps could never forgive?
If we asked Simon, could God forgive even those most disgusting people? How would he have responded? He would have said, surely not. Surely not. No, 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 no. For Simon, grace, even the grace of God, even the forgiveness that God offers, is dependent upon our performance. God forgives those who try hard, who make it look like they belong to him. God forgives those who please him. God forgives those who take his law seriously, who live obedient lives. And therefore, Simon would reason, those who've made foolish decisions in following sin necessarily put themselves out of the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. They've burnt their bridges. But what has Jesus revealed to him now? Jesus shows him, we're all sinners, Simon. And we're all unable to pay the debt. You, me, Simon, the woman, Judas, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. Not one of us is able to pay the debt ourselves. We're all dependent upon that debt being cancelled on our behalf. Now, to assume that God would forgive you based on a comparison that you make between yourself and other people is a bit like assuming that you will be chosen as the next Prime Minister because you live a little bit closer to London than those ruffians in Glasgow. That's how foolish that line of reasoning is. To think that God will forgive you because there are other people worse than you is to think, I will be Prime Minister because I live closer to London than the people who live further away. It's it's entirely flawed. On the one hand, it, it ignores the fact that there are people better than you yet. There are people who live closer to London even than us. And on the other hand, it ignores the fact that that's not even the way, the reason, that the Prime Minister is chosen. And the comparison between you and the other person is not even the way, that's not the the method that God uses when he hands out his grace and forgiveness. If God is going to forgive me, it's not because of who I am, it's because of his grace. And it's grace that in titling this sermon I have called Scandalous Grace. It is a scandal that God treats people in this way. It is a scandal because it accepts the people who are most severely, abhorrently, disgustingly immoral and impure. It welcomes them. How could you after what they've done? It's a scandal, this grace. And it's a scandal because even those who have lived morally upright lives, blameless in many ways, respectable, even those types of people perhaps are cut off from the forgiveness of God because this is the way that God treats people. Because he treats us with grace, not based on our own merit. And if you are reasonably good, if you have lived your life, if you've grown up in the church, if you've spent many years serving God in all sorts of admirable ways, then it would be very hard to accept the truth of your indebtedness. It would have been hard for Simon to accept that he was unable to pay the debt. And it may be hard for you too to accept that no matter the level and and commitment of your service, it does nothing to pay off that debt that you owe to God. And it's an inconvenient truth. And so the temptation is for such people to, to hide it, to cover it up, to ignore it. But the sinner 
The person who sees, yes, I am in debt, who feels that debt so keenly, who knows their own weakness and their own failings, rather than hiding and ignoring it, they see that the only way to be free from it is to approach the one who's exposing them for it. They see the only way to deal with it is to come to Jesus himself. Now, who are you? Which of these two people in the story are you? Are you like Simon? Good enough for God? You know, if you consider that there are other people in this world who God could simply never forgive because their sin is too great, you're like Simon. You've not grasped that you are the one who is utterly dependent upon God's grace. And if you consider that there's some sort of marker that is just a little bit further down the line than where you currently stand, then you're presenting yourself to God based on your own works, your own merit. Only when you see your own inability, alongside the inability of others, are you then in a position to receive the grace that is freely offered. Now, of course, there's an objection to all this, and probably an objection that was behind Simon the Pharisee's thinking. Surely, if this is the way grace works, it just commends sinful living. Just carry on living as you like. Just go on in sin. Uh, Treat people poorly. Ignore Christ, because at the end of the day, his grace will be given. But is that what you see in this illustration, in, in this story? Did the woman go on in her sinful life? No, she didn't. Because grace doesn't condone sin. Grace gives us the power to to lift us out of sin. Salvation is freedom from sin, as well as forgiveness for sin. And so, yes, there, there is a link between obedient lives and salvation. There is a correlation between those who are obedient and those who are saved. But not in the way many expect. So many assume that if I am obedient, I will receive forgiveness. But it's the other way around. Obedience is the result of salvation. It's not the condition of it. And there are all sorts of implications of these truths that are presented today. One is to reassess whether we are those who have received God's grace. Are we utterly dependent upon Christ in every way, in every area for the forgiveness that he offers? Or are we seeing Christ as simply the the leader uh, and we're sort of following in his footsteps and, and offering our own righteousness to God? Are you utterly dependent upon Christ or are you seeking to offer what you have? If you're offering what you have, you will find at the end you have nothing you will find at the end that you are so far in debt that you, you would not be able to deal with it if you had all the time in the world. Only those who are sincerely trusting in Jesus Christ, utterly dependent upon his grace, will receive the forgiveness in the gospel. There's an implication here as well about how we treat other people inside the church and outside the church. How do we engage with those in the world with immoral lifestyles? How do we speak to the adulterer? the homosexual, the thief, the self-centered ego, the heretical pastor. We must not, we must not fall into the trap of making people change their lives before they come to Jesus. If that's what you're demanding of people, you must leave that behind before you can come to Jesus. Then you've lost the gospel. 
Come to Jesus and he will change your life. Come to Jesus and he will change your life. That's going to affect how we deal with people outside the church and our willingness to engage with them, even eat with them, get to know them and to love them. And finally, perhaps if your own love for Christ is waning cold, how do you fix it? How do you grow in your thankfulness? How do you make worship more sincere? Or one obvious way is to reconsider his grace to you in the gospel. Whoever has been forgiven much, loves much. And if we've only got a little love, perhaps it's because we've lost sight of how much we've really been forgiven. We're going to have a few moments of silence where perhaps you might use that silence to reconsider the grace that you have received. Perhaps you might use it to come to Christ for the first time in utter dependence, asking for the forgiveness that he offers. And then in a few moments, we'll, uh, I'll dismiss the, the meeting. A few moments of silence and to pray about what we've heard.